Welcome to this scintillating episode of the AfriNuke podcast as we bring you Dr. Todd Allen, the chair of the number one nuclear engineering educational program in the world at the University of Michigan. Dr. Todd Allen is a professor at the University of Michigan and a senior fellow at Third Way, a DC-based think tank supporting clean energy portfolio. Dr. Todd Allen transitioned from being a submarine nuclear engineering practitioner to being a top global researcher in civil nuclear engineering through teaching physics to high school students. He went on to get his PhD at the University of Michigan. His career has seen through various leadership positions in the U.S. national labs and institutions. Listen to the end, you will find a killer instinct for advanced nuclear designs. Quick introduction. I am currently the department chair of the nuclear engineering department at the University of Michigan uh, here in the U.S. Now, in the course of my career, uh, I worked as an academic at two different universities. Um, my formal training as an academic is in material science of uh, nuclear energy systems. Uh, I've worked as a staff scientist at one of our uh, Department of Energy National Laboratories, Archon National Laboratory. I've worked as a senior executive uh, at a different national lab, the Idaho National Lab. So I was the deputy laboratory director for science and technology, sort of the, uh, think of it as the number two person at the lab. I worked at a think tank in Washington, D.C. called Third Way. Uh, I still work with them, uh, not full-time, as a visiting fellow. Great. And I started my career as a nuclear submarine officer. So after I got my um, bachelor's degree in nuclear engineering, I spent seven years in the U.S. Navy as a submarine officer. So I've had experience in running nuclear reactors on submarines, teaching about nuclear engineering, uh, research, senior leadership, policy, bunch of stuff. Wow, that's so great, Professor. I I see that you a, a lot of your career is so much um, involved in the mainstream nuclear level. Working in a submarine takes a lot of um, um, intelligence, if I may say, because uh, one time I was watching a, uh, the YouTube video about what it takes to get recruited into the into the submarine, not just the Navy, but the submarine aspect takes a whole lot of um, grit, or do I say... Um, uh, wheat, if I may say. So, um, tell us about your journey working in the submarine. Like, how how is it for you? How was it, if I may say? Yeah, so I, I tell people it's a great first job, right? So I was a nuclear engineering major, right? So I would have told you that I, I knew a lot about nuclear energy, but um, being on the submarine and actually having to operate you know, the nuclear reactor, you just learn so much about the practical applications um, of nuclear energy that you don't necessarily learn as an academic. So that was important. Um, It's also, the reason I think it's a good first job is compared to any other job I can imagine, you get a lot of responsibility uh, and the opportunity to prove yourself as a young professional. Because honestly, there's a hundred people on the submarine, slightly more than a hundred. And you're in charge of everything, right? You're in charge of running the equipment. You're in charge of making the water, of preparing the food, putting out fires if they start, right? There's no, you can't call emergency services. You, You are, right? And so, you know, I find that people that go through that, um, when, when they come out, um, and people are looking to recruit them, uh, it's easy to get a lot of good job opportunities because people recognize that if you have succeeded in that world, um, it's challenged you and you're you're probably 
uh, very self-directed. You take care of yourself. You take responsibility for things. And so, you know, some people decide they want to stay in the Navy for a whole career. Others don't. But even if you don't, I think as a first job, I, I can't imagine anything else that would put you on a pathway to a successful career. Now, that said, you have to live on a submarine, right? It's very crowded. Yeah. You're away from your family for long periods of time. Yeah. Uh, you don't get to see the sun for weeks at a time. So it's a challenging environment, but I'm glad I did it. Wow, that's quite interesting. When I look at um, or imagine how the life in the submarine is, like you are living under sea for some time, like and yep. the, the kind of engineering system that makes the environment so conducive or at least livable is quite um, amazing, if I may say. So uh, I, would, I would say it's a, it's a very great um, honor for me to be in touch with um, a former submarine <laughs> nuclear engineer. So uh, that's uh, very, very, um, do I say, interesting to know. Um, if I may um, delve into another aspect, uh, I would like to know how you transitioned somehow, even though you say it was very easy for you to uh, to get a job when you come came out of the submarine environment or the Navy environment, it was quite easy for you to get into the mainstream um, nuclear engineering. So, but I believe there were some little um, nuances, if I may say, uh, to the working environment, although the discipline has been instilled already. But how were you able to deal with the civilian aspects, if I may say? When you came out, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So, it, to a certain extent, I, I lucked out. So, when I left the Navy, um, and the Navy is a little bit complicated. So, I was full time Navy for seven years. Yeah, you said uh, that. And then, then when I left, I stayed in part time Navy for another seventeen. So, there was a portion of my career where I had a civilian job and a part time Navy job. But my last job when I was full time Navy, they sent me to the United States Naval Academy which is an officer training school uh, in, in our state of Maryland. And they asked me to teach physics. Um, and so during that those two years, I decided that I was going to leave full-time Navy and I was gonna go back to school to get my doctorate degree. Yeah. Um, and so partly the time teaching at the Naval Academy sort of showed me, right, that teaching as a, as a potential profession was possible. Um, and so it, I think it helped me um, decide that my first first thing that I would do after I left the full-time Navy was go back to school. And then I got my PhD. And so, of course, once you, once you get your doctorate degree, that's a research degree. Yeah. Um, and then my first job after getting the degree was at one of the national laboratories as a research scientist. So cool. uh, I, I transitioned through getting a PhD and sort of becoming a professional researcher. But... By coincidence, the Navy gave me a teaching opportunity that helped me see that that future. That's quite interesting. Thank you so much, Professor. I, I when I was doing my research to before coming to um, have this chat with you, I not just because of this recent research for this um, um, session, but I've previously known that University of Michigan is the number one um, nuclear engineering program in the world because I believe that uh, U.S. is the number one in the world in nuclear engineering. So being number one in U.S. means um, it's top in the world as well. So uh, can you tell us the journey of how this came through? Although I believe that you did not start from um, Michigan, but you are now the chair of the nuclear engineering program. So some of our audience may want to know um, some how, how this um, became and what makes it so special and why is it the top? And um, I also read recently from your side that you have some kind of um, um, arrangement, if I may say, 
that um, addresses some kind of um, structural racism in nuclear energy. I, I, I don't really know what that means, but um, coming from uh, the developing world here, we don't deal with such kind of um, issues, but I believe it is um, a major issue from where you are coming from. So please, can you just run us through briefly about the story of uh, the nuclear engineering program in the University of Michigan, where you are the chair? Yep, sure. And I should say that um, I, I got my PhD at Michigan too. So I was Fantastic. here as a, yeah, I was here as a student. Then I left for almost twenty-five years, and then came back as the chair a, a few years ago. Yeah. So University of Michigan um, started in the nineteen fifties. Uh, is one of the first U.S. Uh, nuclear engineering programs. Um, built uh, one of the first nuclear reactors on campus. And so it started very much as, um, you know, in the 1950s in the United States, nuclear technology was very new uh, and people were trying to learn about the technology. And so um, the department started up as part of a broader campus-wide um, program to understand the technology. So there were people in the law school that were thinking about the legal aspects of this new technology and people yeah. in the medical school who were looking at medical applications. Yeah. So our department over the years um, has grown significantly. Um, so now we have the largest faculty, largest number of faculty uh, of any department in the US. And if you look at us, we break down into the four major technical themes. Yeah. So we yeah. have people that do fission reactor design. Yeah. Uh, we have people that do plasmas and fusion reactors. We have people that do radiation detection systems and associated with that um, safeguards and non-proliferation studies. And then we've got material science. So we, I think, are compared to any other department in the, the country or world are very broad and also very deep. Um, wow. A lot of expertise. Yeah, that's and, such a... Yeah, that's a very big spectrum of um, coverage, if I may say. So uh, this this um, makes it um, very, um, do I say, um, possible for anybody that has interest in um, almost all the wide spectrum of um, aspects of nuclear engineering to find um, a niche or to find um, a welcoming hand when considering University of Michigan, especially from this part of the world. So uh, that's quite interesting to know. I... I have also um, read about your contributions in um, Third Way, which is um, one of the think tanks um, you, you work in. And I kind of wonder, like, um, at one of those times, you had to go to the, to the parliament to defend um, the position of nuclear. And um, coming from the developing world, where we don't even have it, let alone defending it, I wonder, like, what are the uh, key takeaways? Um, I read part of it, but what would you want to highlight to the whole world, especially to Africa, where we don't have any reactor running, uh, as the main point that should be considered or the parliament, because they are the ones between the technology and the public. So what should they know or what should they kind of um, implement or be more proactive about when it comes to nuclear, not just nuclear, but also advanced nuclear designs? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I think there's a number of reasons why people or countries will consider nuclear energy. Um, one, it's zero carbon, right? So in the current atmosphere where people are worried about climate change and trying to minimize the negative effects of fossil fuels, um, nuclear energy is zero carbon, and it's a very high density energy source, right? So you get a lot of energy from a small amount of physical infrastructure. So that's its benefit. Um, 
I think one thing that's important about the current time we're in, um, if I go back half a century and we were building the first nuclear plants, the incentive across the world to, was to build them as large as possible. Right, gigawatt size. Yeah. Um, and that, that only makes sense in certain contexts, right? You need a big enough grid and enough power to do that. So it's it's a limited use of the technology. The reason I'm excited about advanced nuclear technology mm. is you now have people looking at varying sizes that might make sense in different markets. They're looking at different business applications. So maybe um, you would use a reactor for heat for industry as opposed to electricity. Maybe instead of throwing away heat from a plant that's used to make electricity, you figure out a way to use it for industrial heat or couple it with storage, which then couples with wind and, and solar and takes advantage of the best aspects of, of all those technologies. Right? So I think there's this driver to zero carbon that brings a lot of people into the discussion about nuclear. But it's, but it's also, we, we, we're starting to use the word firm in the U.S. to mean it, it can be on all the time, right? And having a component that's there, no matter what, uh, I think is important can to... You, again? you said the word firm? Firm. Okay. Yeah, we used to use the term baseload, but now a firm is becoming more more in use in the U.S. Okay. But, but it means it, it's there whenever you need it. Okay. Right? So and therefore... It, it, partners with wind and solar in a nice way if you're looking at a zero carbon system okay so that's like um, a high capacity factor like it's always on yeah exactly. yep. well, it has always had that kind of um, feature you know uh, among, yep. yeah most um, energy source uh, that's very very remarkable to know uh, how um, the advanced nuclear designs and how they will scale different um, applications and in the modern times and that's um, kind of makes me think about um, some big industry um, um, players uh, like in the US the people like uh, Bill Gates they're already fronting for advanced nuclear designs and how to bring innovation to this um, um, interesting and um, remarkable aspect of technology that brings solution to our energy needs. So uh, I also begin to think about the African context and think about the big business people who could um, um, also give a try or give a kind of um, analog um, um, kind of um, um, action in terms of getting these technologies to support their business for a start. I remember when we were on the ONDEC uh, fellowship um, and I gave the question about the niche we should be considering for uh, uh, advanced nuclear deployment in Africa. And um, the, 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 uh, Dr. Leslie quite uh, rightly uh, answered that um, we should kind of consider some business uh, businesses that might need uh, these re uh, reactors to to power their um, industry or to power their machines so this brings me to the question like what kind of um, uh, kind of applications or kind of designs do you think would be more suitable for an environment where you don't have these things existing before but you want to bring this new design and like a company like Dangote, who is the richest man in Africa currently, might want to have it in one of his um, um, plants and uh, to power his um, machines. So what do you think um, and what is the future of advanced nuclear in this regard, especially in Africa, if you may say? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. It's one of the reasons why I'm excited about advanced nuclear, because you have so many different possible sizes 
for energy outputs and how you use them, um, that you can start thinking of them being more tailored to industrial applications, right? Um, and I, I think there's this potential for companies to be the drivers. And so the, the analog I, I like to use is um, back in the early 19th century when we were just um, understanding electricity. Right? We had companies like Westinghouse in the US who wanted to make electricity, right? They were figuring out how to do this and how to deliver it to people. At the same time, they started developing products that use electricity things you'd want in your home, right? So they were thinking both about the yeah, production of the energy. Use, both, yeah. yeah, right? And so I think one of the things that advanced nuclear allowed people to think about is how do you do that, right? So you could, if, if it's an industry that requires high temperature heat, for example, yeah. um, it's very inter- inefficient to get high temperature heat to go from solar to electricity and back, right? Yeah. Um, so you might want to say, let's just use a, a reactor directly. Then if you're that industrial concern, you may have days where there are there's more power available from your reactor than you're using. So you can now have spin-off technologies, you might make, um, make an arrangement to share that with community grid. Um, so that, you know, people talk about advanced nuclear, a lot of times they talk about technology development, but I actually think the business case development yeah. The possibilities are just as interesting. So you mentioned Bill Gates, yeah. right? And there was a big announcement in the U.S. this week that he's going to build the first demo of his plant uh, in our state of Wyoming. Yeah. And one of the novelties of his system is that he couples the reactor to a high temperature storage capability. So he, yeah. he can use the storage as a buffer, yeah. right? You've got excess power, save it, and then use it later. Yeah. Um, and so... And he announced that he's going to, to do it at a, a site in the U.S. that's got a coal plant that's closing down, right? So you see it's this transition to zero carbon, but also new business systems. That To me, that's as exciting as the technology behind behind the reactors. Yeah. That's interesting. That's quite um, amazing. And um, recently, there's this um, 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 normal um, climate um, action and everything going on. Uh, just a few days ago in Lagos State in Nigeria, the governor kind of um, inaugurated a high-powered um, climate team kind of talking about mm-hmm. the environment and how our energy use and general activities should be more concerned about how we affect the environment. So this brings me to the question of what do you think about, because in this place, uh, this part of the world, uh, Africa, I'm not like trying to say that we cannot deploy advanced nuclear. It's very possible. But uh, what is more easily adopted or uh, deployable is the renewables. And it's really what is going on currently in the continent, especially in Nigeria. You have... um, um, kind of um, distributed systems and off-grid um, systems uh, supply from the renewable um, energy resource. So I wonder if there is any way that um, these two energy resources can be combined to uh, make a complementary uh, solution to our energy needs, if you may say. Yeah, I, I absolutely think they can. Um, and as an example, one of the types of uh, advanced reactors people are talking about, uh, we, we use the term micro-reactors, yes. sort of megawatt size. I think these are very complementary to a renewable system. So first, they're all zero carbon. 
the micro reactor could be on all the time. Um, so that gives you some stability and reliability in your system. It's not too big, right? So the size of a micro reactor is similar to the size of a, a reactor on a university campus, right? So as compared to a big traditional commercial reactor, the number of people involved, right, um, to get the power can be smaller, right? So I think the, the amount of training um, uh, necessary to be ready to run these reactors will be simpler. Yeah. Um, and so I think something will actually make sense um, in these contexts, you know, like the one you mentioned, where you're looking at a distributed system, where you want stability, you want zero uh, zero carbon, you want to take advantage of your renewable resources, right? I mean, they're great. The fuel is free. You don't have to pay for sunlight, right? Um, but you're trying to build a system that, that gives you energy stability because that's that's what allows you to to grow economies and, and provide people power and for their homes and things. So. I, I actually think there's a lot of possibility there um, where um, combining the advanced nuclear with the renewables will, will make sense. Yeah. Mm. That, that said, I do think, I mean, there is some, some training required to learn how to do nuclear, um, but I do think that that's something that's possible. I, I think it's actually it's one of the places where the United States needs to be a better partner. We, we used to do this really well. If you go back to the 1960s and 70s, we partnered a lot with countries like Japan and Korea who had no nuclear. Yeah. Right. Lots of people would come to our country, we train them. I think we could be doing the same thing. Yes. Um, because a country that hosts nuclear needs technical people. They need people that understand radiation health. They need people that understand sort of legal and regulatory. Yeah. So there is some work to be ready, right? But I, I think it's, it's possible to get there. Well, uh, we in some ways we have experienced a level of existential dystopia due to COVID nineteen, mm. and um, a lot of things have changed. Um, we are we now live in a new normal, as some people may say. Do you have any lesson, like or any kind of um, kind of do I say prognosis about uh, the future of? Uh, nuclear energy considering the new realities in which we live in although some things did not change like um, our 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 like requirements or our needs for energy have not have not changed and uh, in some sense our lifestyle have changed but um, we need to adopt some kind of new ways of doing things what do you think uh, COVID-19 has kind of um, taught us or brought to us as a new way of doing things and how this um, impacts the nuclear um, energy uh, community, if you may say. Yes, I, I'd say a few things. I, I think that um, one, I mean, just the fact that we're having this conversation today, um, the use of digital technologies to communicate with each, with each other um, has made it a lot easier to bridge geographical distances. Um, you know, we used to have to send a delegation and travel these, these conversations on Zoom and things, they're not perfect, right? Um, I find they, it's sometimes harder to expand your professional network compared to meetings where you gather. But at the same time, we can have a lot of conversations that, that um, I think will allow us to, to bridge and meet new people and help with sort of the training and transition elements. Yeah. Um, I do think to your point about distributed systems, and I think this was true before COVID, there, there is um, a push towards more local control yeah. um, and wanting to sort of control your own energy destiny. And I think that some of the things that um, concepts in advanced reactors like microreactors fit into that that story. Yeah. Um, and I think, but I do think that um, 
Yeah, I think to me at least those are the big lessons yeah. learned around yeah. energy. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for the answers to those questions. I just want to um, bring you to some last few points that I want us to talk about. Uh, sure. Being in the nuclear engineering field um, for, uh, do I say, a major part of your life, if I may say, and um, you must have learned a lot and some things must have happened to you and you developed some kind of gumption or ways of overcoming some um, peculiar challenges. Uh, uh, I would want to know, like, what kind of resources or what kind of things have helped you as you progress to becoming who you are at the current time? Uh, I'd say a few things. I'd say that um, I have found that if you take a first job, a task, and you do well, um, people will notice and give you opportunities to do other things, right? So I, I explained my career, right? And I've done lots of different things. Yeah. Um, none of them I could have predicted as a young person, right? So but to me, the, the, the thing that happened over and over again was as I, as I had more career success, people were willing to give me a chance to do things that were new. Um, and, and I would just say, you know, my, my advice is um, try different things, take chances. Um, it, for me, at least, it, it's paid off. Now, along the way, there will be, there will be times when um, specific events don't go well. Yeah. Right? Um, like and it, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, these, these things happen to everyone, right? So I think it's a very long, uh, long game, um, right? And you have to just um, uh, find ways to, if, if something goes wrong, like learn from that mistake, improve your performance, you know, figure out how to, to be a better person, essentially. Like, uh, to, uh, yeah. in your day-to-day, like, activities, like, uh, do you have any kind of routine or resources that has helped you to uh, maybe... Um, like continuing what you are doing. I know you've given a very important point, but some people listening to us might want to get some things, maybe particularly, maybe that has helped you to um, overcome some challenges or progress, as you may say, in your career ladder. I don't know if you have any links or maybe suggestion, maybe any word for that. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I guess I'd give two pieces of advice. One, okay. um, partner with people. Okay. Right. I mean, I found that a lot of my uh, career advancement has, has become. I, I found ways to work with okay. people um, that sort of made me better, um, and so I think that's important. Okay. Um, I think as as someone um, that likes partnerships, you know, le- learn how to give others credit. Um, they'll they'll give you credit back. Okay. Um, and then I I think personally, um, I do. I'm an obsessive planner. Okay. <laughs> like, I, I worry about things well, well before they're due, right? right? But I think thinking about things on a longer time scale and trying to, to get things done in advance, um, it allows you to be ready for emergencies, okay. right? Because you don't let things pile up. So of course. that may just be my, my personal working style. But, yeah. yeah, all right. That's very great. Uh, just this last one. This question should have come earlier, but uh, because... Um, a lot of um, African countries, um, Nigeria inclusive, uh, have recognized the potential of nuclear energy and most of them want to build these reactors. Some of them are going into partnerships with um, different countries I would not want to name, but um, 
you have been in the field and you must have produced um, students who work in different parts of the uh, of uh, of the world applying their knowledge in nuclear technology and maybe you must have also gotten feedbacks about um, the outcome of these um, developments in different parts of the world so i wonder if um, you think there are some variables that should be considered in terms of policy regulations, the kind of um, technology, human resource that um, newcomer countries uh, should consider when they want to kind of um, adopt this technology? Yeah, I, I would say um, train, train your people first, right? Make sure that you are starting to develop the expertise that that understands the technology and the regulation, um, health aspects, um, so that you you have more control um, over your own your own destiny. I, and I worry a little bit about deals where some country will come in and they'll they'll do everything, right? They'll promise to do everything for a country. Yeah, um, I, I don't. I also worry about that too. Yeah. Um, so that that would be that would be number one. Two, you know, to our discussion about advanced nuclear. Um, you know, understand where your needs are now, um, and and plan around your own growth pathways. Right. So, you know, if a country, if it, and I saw this happen in, um, uh, I've seen this happen in countries where um, they'll they'll get interested in nuclear and they'll be offered like a giant nuclear plant that's more than they need. Right, um, and they have long discussions, but in the end, it doesn't make sense. So I think with advanced nuclear and the different products, like think about where it makes sense for your country, for your businesses, and sort of think through stages of, of what you'd want from the technology, uh, rather than just what people are offering right now. That's good. Um, it's quite like you, you know what you said is very very important because. Um, you don't know what those um, people who have offered to give you everything and also take all the sheets like it's it's beats imagination if i may say somehow some people just come and make bogus promises i wonder like some holes may have been instilled or installed in some of those things that um, may not be visible so i'm training once um people, if I may say, one citizen, like any country that wants to embark on a nuclear project, uh, there is no um, second to that. Um, it's it's no-brainer. You, you just have to do it if you want a sustainable uh, nuclear program. So I quite agree with, uh, with you on that. And um, I'm looking at U.S. Uh, that has um, um, 20% of its electricity coming from nuclear. I wonder what the future is about it, considering that it's coming out with different advanced nuclear plants and some constructions are being delayed. I wonder, like, what lesson or what, um, what example are you showing to other parts of the world and your potential customers in the future? And what's, how can we avoid such, if you have any words? Yeah, so, so, so I'd say a couple things. I mean, um, clearly we're at an inflection point in the U.S. where some of our older plants are getting to the end of their life. Um, but I think what's nice is that we are creating advanced nuclear products that give us a, a potential for a different looking future. Um, you know, during this time period, the U.S. actually we slowed down a lot. And so we lost skill in building uh, very large reactor projects. Um, and, and to a certain extent, we're sort of reimagining our future now. So to me, the lessons learned are you need to have sort of a consistent approach to development. Consistent um, approach to development. Yeah, right. you, 
you can lose your skill set, right, if you don't exercise it. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons yeah, that I like the smaller reactors is because you, you potentially build more of them. You get good. You learn by doing. You improve performance in a way that you might not be able to with advanced, uh, with the very large plants. Um, the other mistake I think we made in the U.S. was we custom designed almost every big plant in the early years. You know, unlike France, which built multiple copies of the same one and learned a lot from it. Um, yeah, we we weren't we weren't great about learning from doing in our first first generation deployment. Okay, okay. that's very interesting, uh, Professor. I sincerely appreciate um, the time with you. Uh, you are the professor from the number one um, nuclear engineering um, graduate program in the world, and it's a very big privilege for me to have you. I consider you a very honorable catch, and um, I sincerely appreciate the time and um, your honor to the invitation to feature on this podcast. I hope we can um, have some time with you more in the future when um, the need arises. <laughs> Yeah, no, thank, thanks for inviting me, uh, and I'm glad to talk to you in the future. And yeah, and I hope your podcast keeps growing. Yeah, I'm looking forward to you being a famous podcast person. <laughs> and then you will be the uh, mentor of that famous uh, podcaster. Yeah, there you <laughs> Especially go. <in> nuclear. <laughs> thank you so yeah. much. I sincerely appreciate the time with you. All right, thanks. Appreciate it. Bye. Any last word for our audience? Although you've given a lot of them, but maybe just one more. <laughs> Uh, no, just uh, follow your passions. Uh, work hard. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Professor Todd. Sincerely appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Bye.